You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and this week my special guest is a lovely lady from Sweden named Emily Kaysdotter. Uh, Emily does what she calls empathetic communication with other species, non-hierarchical riding and handling of horses, and alternative treatments such as acupuncture, homeopathy, herbal medicine, things like that. Uh, Emily has a school slash farm that's a sanctuary for about 170 different species of animals. And this conversation with Emily, you know, I, I started out... Uh, you know, thinking she could do the animal communication stuff a little bit, uh, which I was kind of interested in. But as the conversation went on, uh, there was a whole lot more to Emily than um, than I thought. And the last hour of this conversation could be some of the most profound stuff I've ever heard, uh, including some crazy, crazy things in New Zealand, crazy things in uh, Jordan with the with the Princess of Jordan, and there's a whole lot of Oh, amazing stories that go along with that experience in Jordan, not only being there, but how she got there. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. It's one one of the most, uh, I don't know what, <laughs> even how to describe it, profound, interesting, amazing, out there conversations I've ever had. So here you go. Without any further ado, here's Emily Kaysdotter. Emily Kaysdotter, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you. Uh, I hope I got your last name right today. You got it perfect. <laughs> okay. So there's a there's a little bit of a story about that last name. Why don't we start out <laughs> with the little story about your last name? You're, you're in Sweden, is that right? I'm in Sweden. Yeah, that's true. And uh, my father's name was Kai, uh, so... And daughter means daughter in Swedish. So it's Kai's daughter means I'm the daughter of Kai. And in Sweden, you can change your name if you want to to basically show who you genetically are. <laughs> is it only to show genetically? Yeah, well, the thing is, in, in this particular case, my father's name was Åkesson, which means the son of Åke. And actually, his father's name was Åke. But then it turned out that it actually wasn't his father <laughs> uh, after all. So, so it didn't make sense to be called Åkesson if there was, you know, <laughs> if that whole story had to change. And then he died when I was young. So it was also a way to to carry his memory, actually. <laughs> you know, that's a very cool story at the start of this podcast. And, I, and from what I know about you, this is going to be a cool podcast. So I know not a lot about you, but you've written a book called All the King's Horses, and it's... The bit I've read says, not from the book, but from what I've learned about you, is you're an empathetic communicator with other species. Uh, you are a non-hierarchical riding and uh, handling of horses person, and you're also into alternative treatments such as acupuncture, homeopathy, and 
herbal medicine for horses and you've published three books on those subjects. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Do you realise if you had lived about, oh, I don't know, 600 years ago, you'd be burned at the stake? Yeah, I'm fully aware of that. <laughs> fully aware of that. Yeah, you're a full-on modern-day witch. This is going to be awesome. So, um, And I, I get... I get from what I've read about you, you are an animal communicator as well? Yes. That that would probably be the the main thread or like the, the center of the work, I would say, because it's it's based on what I constantly keep learning from other species. And then it's it's a lot of a lot of the individuals I meet are horses. Because I live with a lot of horses, and and when people come to me to ask for help, they usually come with animals that they relate to in a way that they want something of them, and that this relationship has become problematic. I guess it might be the same for you, and uh, that in our culture tend to be mainly horses and dogs, as well, perhaps. You mentioned about a lot of animals. I also did read that you live with, you have a farm or a school or something that has about 170 animals of different species and people actually come to you and work with them. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, it's it's about between 160 and 170 animals. It's uh, sort of between the chickens and the fox and, you know, living out in the woods. <laughs> Uh, and some of the animals are very old and they, of course, die naturally and new ones comes in. But about 65 of them are horses. And uh, and the rest are cows and sheep and goats and pigs and dogs and cats and guinea pigs, <laughs> ducks. Yeah, you name it. And if someone comes to you there, you know, do people bring their animals to you for help or do people come to you and you almost like guinea pig assisted therapy? You know, <laughs> yeah, do we, you we can have do that. them interact with you? <laughs> you have them interact with your animals to help them with some yeah, problems. Well, well, well it's, it's a mixture. It, it is a mixture. My, my original work was and is in a way to go out to where people are because the, the basic idea was to help try to heal the relationship between humans and animals and solve it within their relationship. But then I met so many animals that didn't get the chance to, to heal where they were. It's like if they don't jump as high as people wish them to do or if they can't perform this particular dressage movement or whatever, they get a period of time to solve it and then, well, they're being sold or put down. And, and particularly horses that doesn't do what we expect them to do. It's like we, we buy an individual, but we tend to forget that we actually buy this horse from someone else, not from the actual horse. Uh, so so we get this animal, and when we presume that we have the right to want something from them, and if they don't give us that, we actually have the right to punish them or sell them. or It's like they owe, they owe us something. And there is something in that way of thinking that, to me, is very problematic. And, and we miss out on so much in that relationship by seeing them as an asset to us in a way. So, and because I live far away, and, and far away mean not only far away from you, but far out in the, in the woods, and, and uh, I live simple. I mean, it's a tiny house. It's not much costs. And it was easy to just sort of bring home those animals instead of having them being put down. And, and in a lot of cases... 
I mean, the, the idea is that, that because we have, I mean, there is a limited space. We have 65 horses is pretty much what we can harbor. It has to be a horse that really can't heal where it is. Quite often they've suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, or you can see that even when they have healed from their traumas, they are still too wild, perhaps in a way, f- to fit into a normal system. And 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 what do we do with with all these horses that are not cut out to do exactly what we want them to do, even even when they are healthy or not in pain or whatever? Should we just put them down because we don't have a place for them? And and there is something in that that really touched me. I mean, what if we would just remove all the people that are not obedient enough? I mean, what kind of society are we creating uh, where there is no freedom of speech, sort of, even for other species? So then my work was outside and, and, and inside I would take on all these animals that over the years became very many. It started in 1995. So I was 21 when I moved out into the forest with this crazy dream of communicating with other species and and just do that passionately full time. Uh, And that was not very common back then. I mean, it's not very common now, but it was definitely not back then. Uh, And then over the years, as these animals healed, they started to be interested in humans. So it turns out that my dream was to create this space for animals to, to heal and to be allowed to be who they are supposed to be without expectations of anything else. And it seems like they wish to create that place for humans. <laughs> so now, <clears throat> since 2018, there is we also run a school. I mean, me and the horses uh, run a school. It's basically them running the school and me being the secretary. It's their ideas. You know, I want to get... Yeah, I want to get to the school in a minute, uh, but you were talking about how, you know, when you when you buy a horse, you, do, you buy it from the owner, you don't buy it from the horse. There's an expectation that they have to meet, and if not, you sell them on or, or whatever. And if you th- think about, and then you also said that, you know, not that long ago, looking at things the way you're looking at things was uncommon, but if you think... Oh, not that long ago, maybe 100 years ago, maybe more than 100 years ago, maybe 150 years ago, and possibly even still to today in some parts of the world, people own other humans. Yeah. They, they have slaves. And, and for most of the civilised world these days, that is, is abhorrent. Like that's just shocking that anybody would do that. Mm-hmm. And But... It hasn't changed with animals, especially say with, with with horses. Is most people still treat them like people used to treat slaves? Yeah. Back in back in back in the day, and and you know from conversation like this, I can just see at some point in time that in the future that um, people treating horses like slaves will hopefully be as abhorrent yeah. to the general population as we currently view treating people as slaves. And, I, and, I, and that probably brings me to the, the thing I really want to talk about in this whole podcast is in your book it says you're, you, know, you have this school 
with, I think this is, oh no, sorry, that's not from the book. Sorry, I'm getting my notes mixed <laughs> up here. But this school, I read somewhere, it says you have this school with the aim of expanding consciousness and for humans to learn more about themselves through the relationships and interactions with other species. And I think it would be the expansion of consciousness, yeah. of all of human consciousness, that would lead us to the point to where people would think treating horses like slaves is abhorrent. And and I think you touched on it here a second ago, That, and I, I've found this with my work over the years, is that if you can have a relationship with them, they would love to have, even yeah. the worst horse that, you know, people say, this horse doesn't like people or whatever. If you have a relationship with them, they are seeking relationships. Yeah, they, definitely. They're, they're herd animals. They're, they're like, they're, they're mammals. They're, they're social creatures. And if you can just treat them the right way, they are quite happy to not only have a relationship with you, but those things that people want their horse to do or else, they will actually offer that to you. Yep. It's very easy to ask them to do those things. So it's not that they don't want to do the things we're asking them to do. I think it's they don't like the way they're treated. Yeah. And they don't like the way they're asked. But anyway, I'm not I'm not telling the podcast, you're telling the podcast, no, but, but I want to talk about this. This school with the aim of expanding consciousness. Now, some people listening to this podcast might go, consciousness, what exactly is that? So can we start out with your definition of what you think consciousness is? Yeah, that is <clears throat> that is a fascinating and such a difficult question. Actually, only last week, there was one of the horses who was helping a person that came because some, some people come to, to look for private sessions with the horse or usually they come to the herd and then one or two horses or a few horses will come out to to help that particular person. And this this horse, uh, he described it like, we, we are alive. I mean, he wouldn't have described it with words. This is like an immediate experience of, of sharing this mind frame or this situation. The image is that on one side there is the, 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 the physical life, the, the matter, the, the material. And then the soul comes in and these two are merging and then we are alive. It's the mixture between soul and body, right? But he described it as if these two can only meet and mix and merge because there is consciousness. So if you are alive, you are conscious. Otherwise, the soul and, and the physical body would not have merged in the first place. So if you are alive, you are conscious. It, this, is, this is the merging point, in a way. And that made sense to me. And then he added to help this particular person, because you could see the consciousness as a bridge. Uh, and you saw someone running back and forth and back and forth on the bridge and say, that is thought, that is your thought. So the difference between <laughs> between thought and consciousness is also important because we perhaps think that thinking and being conscious is the same thing. And that's why we can't make it work because how can a tree that wouldn't even have a brain uh, have a consciousness if it's tied to the brain? But I was all the time thinking that the consciousness is tied to the soul and therefore everything that is alive also is also aware of its existence and therefore it's constantly telling a story. But with this horse making it merge together that the consciousness is what connects body and soul, that made more sense to me. So being alive in a way means being 
being lit up. I mean, th there is a consciousness. And if that is the case, then anything that is alive is aware of its existence and knowing that they are aware of their existence, whether we, we have senses or not, or whether we can express this or not. So our ability to express our experiences wouldn't be the same as the ability to be conscious about them. And I think that's where we tend to judge other species as being less intelligent in a way, because they have a smaller brain and they don't express themselves by words. But what if consciousness has nothing to do with that? Actually, thought and words and expressions are just our way of translating this meeting point of the consciousness. But it, it doesn't say that the ones who doesn't speak verbally wouldn't, wouldn't be entitled to their experiences. We presume that they don't experience anything because we can't hear it, because we're, we're listening to the human expression, perhaps. Do, are you, do you think that uh, plants have a level of consciousness? I, I do. I just think that with plants, it's so much more complicated. I went to New Zealand because I had a, a dream or a, a series of dreams about New Zealand, and I followed them and I ended up there. And I was met by, by a tribe of Maori people who, who said that, Okay, we knew that you were coming. We thought that you would be a bit old, uh, a bit older, but come in, come in. This is years ago, and then because <laughs> this was all normal to them, <laughs> and then they they were sort of yes. happy about the communication with animals, and that was all good. But then this, then they were a bit upset because I'd left out the plants, like it was an insult. Uh, and then I realized that okay, I actually did forget about the plants because I was so much looking for, and I guess that's human that we are looking for a person to speak with a singular something, preferably with eyes and, you know, like mammals, like, like individuals that we can relate to. And where does a plant begin and end? You know, is, is the seed that comes down from the flower and becomes the next flower, is that then two separate souls? Or where do the consciousness go? And who am I actually talking to? And what happens when they die? And how do they... It's complicated. I guess there is a reason why plant communication never really <laughs> became as popular as, as communicating with animals. But it's, it's also, what I find fascinating with plants is that we are so far away from the, from the separate self. It's a much wider, less isolated experience of life. And I, I guess that's harder for us to, to integrate into our minds. Our life would become more complicated if the plants were aware too. But it's also very fascinating if, if you think about it, and, and all the trees outside, uh, they are all individuals, actually. I mean, it's, it's quite overwhelming, but, but it's, it's mainly a good thing. You know, it's a very uh, indigenous <clears throat> worldview of things, and I'm into that sort of thing. And, I, you know, the indigenous worldview of things was our, our original yeah. worldview of things before, you know, bef before we became mechanized and had civilizations when we were still hunter-gatherers. I know I had a, a lady on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago, a wonderful lady named Jessica Whiteplume. She's a psychiatrist and uh, she's a Lakota. She's Native American Lakota. Um, and she was talking about the, the different nations, the horse nation and, you know, the, the bison nation and the standing, I think that she calls them standing silent nation, which is the, the plants. Yeah, the trees. wow. Mm. And mm. I 
when I'm out riding horses and, you know, if I'm out, you know, different places, whatever, or I'll even do it walking around, but I've done a lot of time riding horses. It seems like the days when I am present really notice the plants and like what I I like to do, it sounds strange, but what I like to do is if I ride past a, a tree and the breeze is blowing slightly and the, and the, the branch is waving a little bit, I wave back. Yeah. I'm like, hey, how's it going? I, yeah. I feel, I feel like that tree's saying hi. And but what's funny is the days that I've done that, I see so much more wildlife. Wow! On the days where I, where I interact uh, interact with the with the plants, like they're. Yeah. I'm not going to say like they're alive because they are alive, but like yeah, but I see what like you mean. They that have consciousness. Are, yeah, they're someone. <laughs> they're someone. And and I'm not sure if it's I'm more present, so I notice more wildlife, or if the wildlife responds to the way I'm showing up and they show themselves. You know, they they show themselves yeah. when you are that connected. They yeah. show themselves, and when you're not, they they don't. I'm not sure which one it is, but, but it could be I all love of it. doing it. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it could be all of it. It probably is. And and I'm also thinking when you say that, I, I guess that's exactly what we need to do because if you look at humans and we talk about slavery, that that's that's what we do. We 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 depersonalize the surrounding. It's like, uh, I mean, you can see it in history all the time. You take away the, the person and then you can take whatever you want from them. So if if uh, if black people don't have feelings, then we can use them for slaves. If women don't have feelings, we can, we can trade with them. And we do the same with animals because it just makes it easier for us to take what we want. And now we've done that to such an extent that we've even forgotten that that's what we do. And the only reality we know is that we are isolated or, or separated so i guess the way back would be to to go back and and personalize every individual one by one so when you do that to the tree i mean that that's an act not only towards the tree but for you as a human being to go back to to relate to this planet again i mean to nature again and i'm sure when we do that it's like you said about the horse it's like if, if I don't expect anything from them, they are very generous and happy to share, which makes it even more sad. Why do we whip so many horses to jump fences when actually so many horses love jumping? Just allow them to do it in their own way. We don't need to force them at all. That's that's even more sad <laughs> when, you, when you think about it like that. So if if we as humans just show the slightest sign of of going back into this common reality... They it really it, it comes back, you know, tenfolds or hundredfolds or whatever. It's so I guess it's a response of of that act. Yeah, it's it's interesting you brought up jumping horses. Um, I had a horseman on the podcast recently, and he is really into you know having a relationship with the horse and building a relationship with the horse, and he. Uh, he called me a couple of days after the podcast and he was telling me that he went to Florida. So th this guy doesn't know much about the jumping world. Okay. Uh, but he'd been asked to go to Florida to, to uh, kind of do a bit of a clinic for a benefit for someone who was injured or hurt or something like that. And it was at this big fancy jumping place. And you know, that he worked with six horses that day, but the first horse they bought him. And like I said, he, 
admits he doesn't hasn't been around jumping horses much. You know, doesn't know much about it. And the first horse they bought him, and they, he said, "Well, what's what's the problem?" And they said, "We can't touch his ears. Cannot touch his ears." And so this guy told me. About five minutes later, I'm kneeling on the ground with that horse's head in my lap, mm. rubbing his ears. Mm. And, uh, you know, this horse, they haven't been able to touch his ears for years. And he said to them, well, is there anything else you'd like me to do? You know, is there any other problems you're having? She goes, she said, yeah, can you stick something in his ear? That's the problem we have. And he says, what, like my finger? And he starts rubbing his finger up and down in there. Mm. And she says, no, no, an earplug. And he looks at him like, an earplug? Why would you want to put an earplug <laughs> in his ear? And then she's like, oh, because noises upset him. And he said right then he just kind of shook his head like, no wonder you're having problems. <laughs> the horse tells you, noises concern me. My, my nervous system is a bit dysregulated. And so you just want to shove earplugs in my ears. And it's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's like big pharma these days and the, the overprescription of, of things to battle the mental health yeah. crisis that's caused by a lack of connection exactly. to the world and to self. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly. And, and I guess it's, I, I realise the more I work with this, that it's all about this, this connection. If, if, if you look at everything we do that makes horses suffer or the environmental issues, what, whatever area you would, you would go to, I find that the problem is this disconnection. And, and that animals, it's like you say, when these wild animals respond to you, they, they seem to want to, to welcome us in, back into this creation. And, and I don't know why we stepped out of it. If it was just habit or forgetfulness or or that we kind of fell in love with personal gain and, and just went off without thinking. I don't know, but, but a, a common question in my work is that I meet people and they know what I do and they say, oh, I would love you to talk to my dog or horse or whatever, but I'm so afraid to do that because because I worry that they will say that they don't love me. And at first you you will laugh at that. I laugh at that too, but then... Uh, th- then I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not laughing. <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because the first time I ever had an animal communicator come out to talk to one of my horses, I was re- really the, my concern was I wanted to know if he was hurting somewhere. Yeah, that's why I had her out. But my my worry was, what if he tells me he doesn't like me? Yeah, and I I guess that that was my worry. Yeah, and and I understand that because I can relate to it, and I think this is. This is this is telling so much. Maybe we make our animals helpless and we force them and we do all these things to them. Because deep down, like in any destructive relationship, we don't truly believe that the other one wants to be with us. So and, and that we're not worthy of this relationship. I mean, even if we are the abusers, we we're not the confident ones, really, as abusers never are in a way. And a friend of mine, uh, Bruce Goodin, he, he is a, a show jumper in, for New Zealand team, or he was. I haven't talked to him for, for a long time now, but I, I think if we met, we would just probably continue where we, where we last were. But we decided to, to make a practice in this because we, we were both hearing so much that the horse, 
is not allowed to take over. If you're not this dominant leader and the horse will take over, there will be all sorts of unspoken dangers. Like no one can really phrase exactly what's going to happen, but you learn from a very early age that the horse is not allowed to take over. And finally, we said, well, what if we would actually let them take over and we see what happens? I mean, we give them the chance to totally dominate us. Will they abuse us, really? So and we were discussing how to do this. And he had about 15 horses in training. And these were all, you know, professional horses. And they are in that game. They have been, you know, taken away from their mothers when they are young. Uh, they were broken in in quite a brutal way at a young age. And everything is expected of them. And they are expensive. You, you, you know the, the situation. If... I mean, you, you would understand if, if they were sick of humans. It wouldn't be a strange thing, right? So we thought, okay, we'll take them out into this big grazing paddock because without any bridle or saddle, and then we would sit on them. That was the plan. And we thought, because if the area is too small, then they will perhaps not show a natural behavior. And if the area is not fenced in, we will probably worry that they will throw us off and run into the road, and then we will interact with the results so it has to be a big paddock and we have to be totally vulnerable i mean we will sit on these horses without anything and they can do whatever they want with us and let's see what they will do when they have the chance uh, i fell off more than him because i'm smaller i have short legs <laughs> and he's a better rider <laughs> uh, but apart from that uh, these horses out of these 15 horses they showed mainly three different ways of responding to this a majority of them started to run around in a very stressful way. Not happily, but stressfully. Some of them even jumped out of the fence. And Bruce managed to stay on, which is quite remarkable. <laughs> anyway, uh, then uh, some of them just went to the gate and wanted to go back into the stables, which is a little bit sad. And then there were two, mainly one horse, that he didn't do anything. He didn't even put down his his nose to, to graze without being told so by the rider. That, that was heartbreaking, actually. He was totally obedient. So that went on for a while, and, and the people around started to wonder, you know, what this Olympic rider is actually doing with his horses. And, and <laughs> When you say a while, do you mean like days, weeks, months? Weeks. What do you mean? Weeks. weeks. Well, we just continued because we really wanted to see what was going to happen. And, and I was going on and off because he lived like a couple of hours drive away. So he would do it all the time, also with his grooms. And I would come and go. So this this went on. And and th this little Japanese guest rider came down and he looked at us and he said, Oh, the Mongolian pony club. <laughs> and and, and th then something interesting started to happen after a couple of weeks or something like that, a while, that... You could see that they continued doing these things, but they all the horses that used to have tensions, I mean, pain in their backs, stiffnesses, you name it, that started to disappear. So all of those tensions went, and then they stopped with all these stressful reactions. Like the ones running around stopped running around, the ones that went to the gate were felt more secure in the paddock, and the one that didn't do anything started to graze. So that was nice. And after that, all of them, without exception, I mean, this is not scientific research, but 15 out of 15 horses, after all of this had happened, they turned around to start to communicate with us. They literally, when we were sitting on them, turned their heads around to look at us. So it's like you say, they do seek communication. So it must be 
it's not in them, it's, it's us. We presume that they don't want to be with us. I don't know why we have this lack of, of inner sense of inner worth or inner value or dignity. I don't know what, how to phrase it. Um, but I guess that's why we create such destructive relationships with, with our surroundings, because we act like bullies. Uh, when, when there really is no opposing force. They will test us. They will do anything to try to figure out who we are. But there is nothing evil in that. I mean, there is, they're not spiteful. It's not that a herd animal will wake up one morning and decide to do what's most harmful for the rest of the group. It's, it's just not going to happen. And to me, that was really a starting point of moving forward with this work. Because it's like, now I know that we don't need to do all these things to make them do what we want. Because I'd come to the conclusion, if I have to do all these things, then I will have to stop being with horses, because it just doesn't work for me anymore. And to me, they, they just prove that they are naturally kind. And, and, and we, we take that for granted, or we presume that they are against us, and, and start the relationship in quite a shocking way. It's like we... we, we taking a young horse and start hitting them on the head for biting us. And they have no idea because they don't, out of all the thousands of animals I've met in these 30 years of work, they never know why we hit them. They just never, they can never explain it. They don't learn a single thing from it, except that we are unpredictable. You know, for about the last, oh, maybe six years, about six years ago, I started looking at nipping horses nipping in a completely different way and I started to look at it as in trying to them trying to engage with us yeah they're not trying to hurt us they're trying to have a have a dialogue with mm -hmm. us and what I had started doing was every time a horse's nose came towards me to nip me I would just cup my hands and let them mm -hmm. put their muzzle in my hands and if they want to rub their teeth on my hands they can do that but I I, I stopped correcting it because I used to I used to correct it and probably not in a nasty way. There's nasty ways to do it, but I used to correct it anyway. But I started and I started engaging with them, mm. and I noticed it got less and less frequent, and and eventually they kind of almost stopped doing it. They will they will come over and nuzzle you, but they won't nip you anymore. Mm. And what I, the, the, the current belief I have now is they are checking to see if you are present. Yeah. And if they check to see if you are present mm -hmm. enough times over a long enough period of time and every time their mouth comes towards you, you are aware it's coming and you, you, you meet it there. Mm. You're like, hey, how's it going? You, you basically get a check mark beside your name to say, He's present. Yeah. I don't have to check and see if he's present. He's trustworthy. Mm. And I'm a big fan of a, uh, mm. there is a couple of researchers here in America, human relationship researchers mm. called, named John and Julie Gottman, and they have a thing called the Gottman Institute in Seattle, Washington. And they're basically America's leading researchers on human relationships. And they can watch a video of a man and woman talking for five minutes and, uh, you know, like a couple mm. talking for five minutes, and they can tell you within like an 85% accuracy whether they will still be married in five years because mm -hmm. there's a lot of the little things yeah. they notice. And the biggest thing biggest thing that John Gottman and Julie Gottman too is on about is what they call bids for connection. 
and one of the people will make a bid for connection and it can be met in one of three ways. What they call turning towards, turning away and turning against. So let's say, Mm. you know, my wife and I are outside one day and she says, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Turning towards would be me going, yes, it is a beautiful day, isn't Mm. it? Okay. If she says it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Turning away from would be, yeah, you know, Mm. whatever, kind of. But turning against would be, don't be stupid, it's bloody cold wind. Yeah. And and turning Mm. against, Mm. turning away and turning against, he... uh, I think they said you've got to have, in order for a relationship to work really well, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have more turning towards than turning away. Yeah. And that, what I've, and I talk about this at clinics a lot because that engaging of their mouth, when they, when their mouth come towards you and they go to, to nip you, if you can turn towards like, hey, you want to say hi, how's it going sort of thing, that's turning towards. If you ignore it and like step back out of their way, you know, that's almost like turning away from yeah. and then slapping them or correcting them is like turning against. Yeah. And once you realize that they are just trying to create a dialogue and you engage in that dialogue, the whole dynamic changes. I mean, that's that's one, th- one little thing that I'm really on about these days with people because horses do it all the time and people correct them all the time without realizing that that's the start of the dialogue and you're basically saying, I am not available to talk to you. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. And, and, then, and then you get all the fallout from that and then people want to know how to correct that thing and then that thing and then that yeah. thing. But for me, I think that's a huge, uh, like, beginning of the whole thing. You know, yeah, there's a lot I, of I, things that come <clears throat> from that. I totally agree. And, and also just to start the practice of seeing that, the outside world is, is kind, you know. It, it is a possibility of kindness. So we don't need to, exactly what you say, turn against everything around us. I mean, we we have somehow made nature our enemy um, and we can't live without it. We're part of it. Um, it's not really going to work all the way to the end. And I think as, as something that looks like a small exercise like that, I think for for your client to, to start to change the look of his horse uh, and, and have a meeting point in, in such a small thing as nipping, uh, it, it, is, it, it's still, it is still groundbreaking because it is one step towards seeing the kindness in the other one. And it's, it's going to be a huge difference for that particular horse. You know, it's interesting, before we got on here, I was actually editing some video from a clinic I did probably six months ago, and there was this uh, thoroughbred, off-the-track thoroughbred that this, this lady had, and she was a, she's a trainer, she's a dressage trainer, and she, she's done a really good job with this horse, um, helping it with a lot of its issues and retraining this horse, but there's one, the, the one issue she's kind of stuck with is he has this weird energy to where he's... Just got this weird busybody, can't relax energy. Mm. It's not explosive or anything, but he's just got that mm. kind of energy. And and at the clinic, while I was talking to her, she, he was trying to connect with her a lot. Mm. And she was either stepping away or just pushing him away. She wasn't, you know, doing it in a coercive way, but she was 
I'm not available to talk, I'm not available mm. to talk, either yeah. stepping away or pushing his head away or don't do that sort of thing. And I said, can I just have the lead rope for a second? And I took the lead rope and the first thing he did was come over to say hi. And I'm like, hey, hi, how's it going? And also, you know, as soon as I engaged with him a number of times, that buzzy energy had just kind of went down. And, mm. and she was trying to figure out what techniques she was asking me what techniques she needed to do to get rid of all this buzzy energy and mm. she's asking that question while she's doing the things that are creating that buzzing energy yeah. which was she was looking at me and and she was engaged with me and not engaged with him and every time he tried to said hey can we connect she's like no 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 mm. and but in in the in the instant that she's saying no to that, she's asking me, "How do I fix the buzzy energy?" Yeah. <laughs> and the buzzy energy yeah. was there because that wasn't wasn't there. You know, it'd be it'd be kind of like, um, you know, asking someone, uh, you know, how do I lose weight while you're standing there with, you know, a bag of chips the size of yeah your body, just shoving them in your mouth. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely, and, and, uh, yeah, it's, and it's also, uh, sorry, but also the fact that we are all the time looking for techniques. It's like, how can I move my arm or leg or change my face or change my thoughts so he will then do what I want him to do? When they are all the time looking for a state of being. Be because <laughs> because I, I also started off looking for techniques. It's like, okay, so if we're not going to be dominant or manipulative or whatever, if, if we're not going to, you know, use these... these uh, rewarding or punishing systems then what technique should I have and it's like well it took me ages to figure out that it's a state of being and it is based on trust and not only that I need to trust the horse because I mean horses are flight animals they're always going to be faster than me and for as long as I live with horses there are going to be times when when I'm out of the timing and I will I have to accept to sometimes be bitten or kicked or thrown off or, or whatever. It, it, it might happen. And if it happens, I, I've stepped into this knowing that things can happen and I can't blame them for it. But <clears throat> so I need to place my trust in something bigger than knowing that nothing will happen. Uh, I, I have to trust in, in something deeper than that. And there is no technique in the world <laughs> that will bring me to that. I have to just constantly try to seek that relationship again and again and again so it's and I think it's very much the, the story you tell is is such a, a brilliant image of the modern human being uh, looking for someone to tell them what to do uh, because if you people say that to me just tell me what to do well it's not about what you do it's how you do it it's why you do it um and it's a lot about how you're breathing while you do it, I find, when it comes to riding, at least. You know, it's interesting the, the how you do it and why you do it. So one thing I suggest people do with their horses as a starting point, because a lot of people, you know, they can't catch their horse, their horse doesn't want to be near them. As a starting point is go into wherever your horse lives and just pull up a chair, read a book, meditate, yeah. whatever you're going to do. And do that until they start wanting to hang around you. And they will start wanting to hang around yeah. you at some point in time. But you have to do that with no expectation. And yeah. This morning in my Facebook group, I had someone said, hey, I've been doing that 
I've been going and hanging with the horse with no expectation and, and she'll walk up to me for a bit sometimes, but then she'll bolt off. Mm-hmm. And then later on she'll come back, she'll walk up and then she'll bolt off. And I mean, I've done this for three hours. I'm, I've done this for three hours at a time. Like, should I, am I doing it right? Should I keep doing it? You know, why is it not working? <laughs> and my reply to her was, you said you went in there with no expectation. <laughs> But then when the horse ran away from you, you said the horse bolted away from me. So it didn't meet the expectation that I said I didn't have. And I said, that's a palpable energy. And you said the how and the why, you know, the why is supposed to be, I'm going to go in there to help repair a broken relationship. Okay. I'm going to go in there to show this horse that I am not just showing up because I want something from you. And that's the, that's, the, that's the why. That's what you should be doing, the why. And if mm. your why is different, obviously she's going in there because the horse is going to come up to me and hang with me. And it's that, yeah. it's that being, like, you know, that, that, that there's an energy to that expectation that yep. is, as you would know, is palpable to a horse. Mm. And we don't even think about it. But, yeah, just how you are, are being, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it's also how we relate to trade. It's like we think, if I put this in, then I should get this back. I mean, I spent three hours now, and what has she done? Well, you know, <laughs> and, and Mio, the horse that is, he, he's not alive anymore, but he was the sort of founder of, for me, he, he was really teaching me lots of, you know, how to to use these non-dominant uh, um not in techniques, but but how to actually put it into practice. And, and and to him it was like, well, something of what you do always have to be a gift where you don't re- expect to receive anything back. Uh, because giving of yourself is necessary, otherwise you won't be able to receive something. And this is not the same as trading. And I think we've got them mixed up. Uh, so, so that's where our expectations come in, that, that we... We think that we are we are we are trading with with individuals, and somehow we know that that's not really the depth of a relationship. I wouldn't want to have a trade relationship with the one I'm married to, or to my best friend. We we kind of know that it's like, well, you know, I bought you coffee last time. I expect you to buy me coffee this time, or otherwise our friendship is starting to be shaky. It has to be based on both of us are giving without an expectation of receiving. And then comes the curiosity. And I think in, in the story you, you, you tell, this horse is showing curiosity, but she knows that if she gives, you know, half of the hoof to this to this this person, she might want the entire horse for something. So she goes there and she makes sure to be safe again. Because because she, she could be caught by these expectations. It's like, oh, we had such a nice canter, so now I want three more rounds because I know you can do it. Well, now you've ruined the trust. It's it's very easily done because now I know you can do it. And you hear people say that a lot. Why don't you jump the fence? I know you can. Well, that is so not the point. Uh, it, it's so, so I think it's our idea of, of, of trading. And you see it with, with lots of interactions with nature. It's like, okay, we cut this tree down. We cut lots of trees in Sweden. So we think, okay, if we just plant a new one, that's fine. Well, it's not going to be exactly the same. It's all these insects and other species living around it. It's so much around the atmosphere when these two individuals meet. So, 
we need to sit still for long enough to all of that to settle. And I mean, that could take years. Uh, I mean, it could. But I remember the, the, the pony that I had my first encounter with in this, in this uh, expansion of the self to include someone else than myself. She was vicious. She was really, she was fighting for her life. She was, she was in a horrible state and, and she was being treated so disrespectfully. She had all the right to fight. And she was biting and kicking me as well. And I knew that that was going to happen. But after a year and a half of that, every day I went to the riding school with my little bucket of brushes because I believed I had to, to groom her. And she hated it. And I believed I had to do it. And she would bite me and kick me. And after a year and a half of, of testing me out, she put her muscle here and, and she was breathing into my ear. And I will remember it for as long as I live. <laughs> because she... She finally, it's like, okay, you're not going to give up. And um, I've tested you for long enough. And perhaps we can start to trust each other. So a year, a year and a half, yeah, I, would, that, I would say, would be a short time, <laughs> even. I, I love that trading versus giving. Um, there is, I don't know if you've ever heard of Anthony Robbins or Tony Robbins. He's a, you know, big time US motivational mm. speaker guy. Yes, oh, yeah, and, I have. Um, yeah, and one of the things he – I remember I listened to a podcast one time and he was talking about this, you know, there's seven things you have to, to have to have to be a fully developed human being or some things you have to do or show up as, whatever. But – and he talked about the first five, I forget what they were, but he said number six, this one's hard for everybody, and it is giving with no thought as to any – you're not going to get anything back from that. Mm -hmm. And he said if you can do that with that intention, you will receive – so much more back from it, mm. you, you it's unbelievable. But it's 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 like it's like when I tell those people, if you go out there and sit with your in the pasture with your horse often enough with no expectation, they will come up and start hanging with you. There's, I know I'm going to get this. Yeah, exactly. Don't have any expectation about it. And when you listen to Tony Robbins say, if you give <laughs> with no thought of anything coming back, you will mm. get a lot. And then it, then then it's the hard part of going okay. I'm going to give, and if I give with no thought of anything back, it's going to come back. So I'm going to give yeah. so I get it back. Yes, and exactly. And like, then no, we're, we're running it's, around it's in the really, sense. Yes, definitely, definitely. Yes, but I love your trading versus versus giving because the the act, the giving act might be the same. You know, the act of giving and the act of the start of trading might be the same. It just depends your intention on mm -hmm. I'm going to do this because I'm going to get this back or I'm going to do this because I want to give this to mm -hmm. them. And it's a, there's a, you know, there's yep. a totally different feeling. Yes. An intention, a vibe, an energy, whatever you want to call it, you know, there's a totally different connection with the divine if you want to look at that yes. way. Yes, oh, definitely. From those two, from those two yes. and, different and, acts. And I think one would come out of the self and one would come out of the ego. So if, mm. if, if the self would be the combination, like we were talking about before, of, of the body and soul, creating this unique individual who is expressing himself in the world, and the ego would, would be the person that we create around that to find our way in, in the world, to live up to others' expectations, to do what we believe we need to do to survive, all of these things, then 
the self would, what I understand from animals is in the consciousness department is, is to know who you are and to manifest this self in the world. Someone needs to receive you and, and truly see you from inside. Then, then in that mirror, you, you start to learn about who you are. Now, if no one meets you in that way, which is highly likely, for, sadly, for, for many of us, uh, then we will have this, this gaping hole inside of us. And around that gaping hole, there is no connection to the soul or the eternal or whatever we can trust that is bigger than ourselves. And around that fear, we build the ego. And the ego knows that it's constantly dying. So it, it needs food all the time. And the food is mainly confirmation. So I need the, the horse to constantly confirm that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm okay, then whatever. And that's not really the role of the horse. That, that's not the role of anyone. Uh, I, I have to find that, I have to meet that need in myself and go into that deep, big hole of emptiness before I can change that. While the self, I think, is looking for, for closeness, for relationships with the world. It's like you see anything that is alive after it knows itself, it starts to want to know everybody else. I mean, we do want to interact in this world no matter what species we are. But but the ego is insatiable. It it will never be full. It will the ego will never be content with no matter what the horse is doing. They can always do it more or better or we can always continue. So I guess what we have like you say is this parallel road where the, the, the self and the ego, it looks exactly the same, but it's actually opposite. It's like giving and receiving looks like trade, but it's actually, like you say, it's a completely opposite feeling. It's a completely opposite experience. But looking at it from the outside, there is not a big difference at all. All the difference is in the inner experience. And, and to understand that, you probably need to have experienced both. So you can compare them with each other. I mean, if you've really ridden a horse that truly wants to carry a human, that doesn't do it to be polite or for lack of punishment or whatever, and someone who actually chose you, you will never forget that difference. But but if you haven't had that experience, then you will probably settle for just having a horse that doesn't hurt you and make you feel that you have some control of your life at least. Some of the stuff you're talking about there, about the ego and the self, I know for me personally, I am learning a lot about that stuff about me through, um, you know, through therapy and stuff like that. Have you, have you done much of that sort of work or has all this come to you through, through animals? It's definitely mainly animals. I've done a little bit of therapy late in life um, because I have obviously all my own issues from where I come from. But the all of these things are mainly animals. I mean, I almost didn't go to school. I, I just wanted to be with horses. Uh, I didn't, I haven't studied much because I've, I've chosen to learn from other species or from, or from people that are sort of following their passion and doing what they believe in. Um... And I sort of felt from quite an early age that I don't want to know too much if I go into this. Because the minute, let's say that I have a meeting with, with a horse 
and I experience what this horse is experiencing. So I know what it feels like to eat that apple or jump that fence or whatever. The minute that information reaches my brain and I begin to know what I am experiencing, there is no longer a meeting point. I'm stuck in myself again. So I'm, so I'm thinking that the more I know beforehand, that will, you know, that will make the, the real glimpse even smaller. So it's better that I know as little as possible. Even if I, if I meet an animal at work, well, it could be helpful to know the name or perhaps a few other things. But I really don't want to know the story or what, how the, the person looks at this horse because I know that it will interfere with the experience. And, and that's why I find it very fascinating now, after all these years of listening to other species and, and being, you know, far off in the forest most of the time. And I meet people uh, like you now or others. And, and I see that, well, we're all meeting in, in the same sort of <laughs> big ocean. Uh, our, our experiences are leading to the same point, even if we would perhaps phrase it slightly differently. But there is something universal about many of these things and that's very hopeful i mean i mean it's it's very it's very nice warwick is happy to announce his first book the principles of training understanding the relationship between you and your horse and why effective training works is now available after a lifetime of working with horses warwick has categorized every horse training method into 12 foundational principles Understanding the intricacies of these principles will allow you to make the most educated horse training decisions on your horsemanship journey and is a must-read for any horse owner. Get your copy today on Amazon or get a personalized copy signed by Warwick on his website, warwickschiller.com. Uh, a minute ago, you are talking about you didn't want to know, you know about too much about the horse. Um, and it made me think of, so a podcast guest I had in the first year of the podcast was Mark Rashid. I don't know if you ever heard of Mark. Yeah, I've heard of him. About <clears throat> horses. And, and Mark does a, a martial art called Aikido, and he talks about an Aikido uh, concept called a mind like still water. And he said, you know, if you go out in the morning and there's a pond and it's still and you're on one side of that pond, when you look into that pond, you get an absolute direct reflection of what's on the other side of the pond. Yeah. But if you pick up a pebble and throw it into that pond and make some ripples, mm. now you have distorted the reflection of what's on the other side of the pond and you're projecting part of you into Or if you walk in there and splash around, you really distort it. Yeah. And he was talking about how, you know, a mind like still water is about being able to see a true reflection of what you're looking at, not all your stuff projected on it. And it's you know, like every interaction every person has uh, – with anybody or anything you look at, there's all these filters and lenses that you see things through and everybody's filters and lenses from their past traumas and whatever are all different. And if you can start to peel those away and you get to actually see the real, whatever it is you're looking at, or in this case, the real horse. Yeah. Um, so you, let me ask you about your animal communication stuff. How do you receive messages is it feelings is it uh i know it's not going to be words but let me say that anyway is it feelings is it words is it pictures is it vibrations is it just a knowing can you describe what it is that you receive from them i think it's in a way all of those things 
perhaps not words, but I would say that in in our conversation now as humans, I have to try to find what I want to explain and then I have to find the words for it and I have to translate them to you who then hopefully will have a similar experience of the same language so it means almost the same to you and then you will take that in and you will phrase however that affects you and then you will toss that ball back to me and all of this is based on the fact that there is a gap between us and and most of the conversation is about trying to overcome that gap so I guess this communication is based on taking away the gap instead of explaining to each other which would also be a way of communicating when there is a linear time. Uh, we are in the same experience at the same time, but we still know that we are separate beings. I mean, I wouldn't believe that I am the horse, for example, and it's not a projection. Uh, so I will experience the entirety of how the horse is experiencing that particular situation. So if there is an image of, of a horse uh, jumping a fence, I will know how it feels physically, uh, emotionally, uh, mentally. Um, and that's the explanation would come there. And that could be very profound and very philosophical and very deep, like an immediate insight. But it would all be happening in the same fraction of a second. So when, when you speak about presence, I think this is, you know, for years, <laughs> this is funny, but for years I thought that Animals were communicating in these small glimpses uh, <laughs> that they would come and go in the conversation. And then I realized that it's me coming and going. I'm only present for this <laughs> second. And then there is silence again. And then there is another present <laughs> second. And it's really hilarious how I thought it was them when it was <laughs> all the time me. Uh, so I guess it's, it's a full experience of somebody else's reality. And in, in that moment when that hits you, uh, it's it's always like a little bit surprising and it's it's really fascinating to experience so many different things and so many different angles of things. Um, and then it comes back to me and then I have to try to translate it to the person. Um, and, and, and I would say that there is also, I mean, there is a big difference between individuals also with animals. Some are really thoughtful. Some are very deep. Some definitely has a sense of humor. I mean, I, I, I believe that sense of humor is, is very basic in this universe, actually, by now. Uh, because it's also how they, they convey, because to me it's an image and a feeling. It's like you, you observe the image from the outside, but you experience it from the inside. And that can definitely be told in a way that has a great sense of humor to it. And I'm sure it's also about the chemistry between us that with some animals we probably click and we have a really an easygoing conversation. And with other animals, perhaps, you know, they would go deeper with, with the meeting of someone else because it's also it's also personal in, in a way. And it's the entire situation. Why am I there? What does the owner want? How much space do we actually have in, in this communication? How much expectation is it? Um, how much, I mean, it took me years to understand that all the horses that are explaining that they want to do anything for the owner and they are afraid of being sold and they just want to be nice, it's perhaps not who they really are, but that's that's all that they think they can be. 
because it's it's like it's like with humans or with children we we can make them believe that they are limited or stupid by all the time treating them like that and it will affect their self image and if they are put in a herd with horses that that can really help them to heal or put in a situation where where humans respect them in a different way it will take out a different personality so it's it's also the limitation of the situation definitely What a complex subject! Um, <laughs> oh, it how, really is. Um, where, where, where did, where did this, how, or how, how, aware, when did this animal communication start for you? Well, it, it started at a particular point in time uh, when I was eleven years old and riding in a riding school uh, in in a city center, very, I would say, traditional riding school. The fascinating thing is that this riding school has totally changed now it's still there it's still in the same place it's still very small paddocks because it's in the city center but there is the the stable manager there that is looking at the horses in a completely different way and that has changed the entire situation for these horses and that's also very hopeful it's like you say if we decide to turn towards them it will make a huge difference even if we can't change anything else but but back in the day when i was a kid it, it was a horrible place because the, all the horses were tied up in stalls and, uh, and, and the indoor riding arena was built in with the stable and there were no paddocks, so they were never outside. They were taken from being tied up in the stalls to being ridden with short reins <laughs> around and around for hours in the riding arena and then being taken back in. So they were literally broken down spiritually, physically, emotionally. And that was just part of, of the system. They knew that, you know, they will last for a few years and then we put them down and then there is another one coming in. Uh, about 60 horses. And, and I'm thinking that subconsciously I have 65 horses now because I still feel bad about those ones. But there was this very angry pony there that refused to, to go into submission. Um, and she taught me so many things. I mean, she was also inspiring me to look for a non-dominant way. Uh, because I realized to her that this can't be the end station. You know, if if submission is natural for an animal, they would be happy in, in that state. They would not be closed off and without personality. So it just right. can't be correct. Um, and it was in a meeting point with her that my first experience of this gap or this wall between us was taken away and I experienced her reality inside of me which was shocking at that time because I didn't know it even could happen and and what she felt inside was such sadness and and desperation and it was really the full experience of not having a voice like like you're you're being closed into some soundproof place where there is this plexiglass windows you can scream as much as you want but no one will take notice because your voice cannot be heard and sometimes i'm thinking that horses they they always suffer silently you know dogs they will scream or bark or make a noise when we hit them but horses they are silent and sometimes i wonder if if that's why we just continue because we don't we don't hear a, a response and and it was such really sad feeling of, of being locked in that place which also touched how I was feeling inside because with my upbringing and the place where I was was very similar to that and 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 that was even more frightening 
So I somehow realized, even if I was very young, that the only way for me to meet someone else is clearly by meeting myself. And I don't know which is more scary uh, at that time because it was painful. Uh, but at the same time, it was also such a deep longing inside of me to get out of that isolation. So I guess what brought us together was the longing to get out of the isolation. And and for some reason, we there was a blessing in that moment. And, and we just went through that wall. And, and from that point, I knew it was possible. And that's why I became her groom. You know how it is in riding schools. I was this little girl with my, like I said, the little bucket with brushes. And, and uh, because I wanted to do what was right and what everyone told me to do. Until I didn't anymore. <laughs> um, but that was my first real experience. And after that, it was like leaving a swinging door not properly closed. So in, in meeting animals, and mainly horses, because that was the animals that I could meet in, in the city, um, that could spontaneously happen without my control, which scared me because I was afraid of, of this unexpected transition. But at the same time, I that was what I was longing for the most. It was a very complex situation. Because I, I wanted, I realized I need to get out of myself, but losing my footing was also frightening. So that that's how it began. And that that pony, she was, you know, yeah. Continue. I'm sorry, I was going to say, I, I was what I was when you first started talking about that, and it sounded like suddenly you had a mind like still water, like you could see exactly mm. what was going on there. Um, and then it was almost like it's almost sounded a little bit like uh, someone had taken a psychedelic. Yep. <laughs> and and I was I, in my head while I was listening to you. I was kind of thinking, I wonder was there a traumatic event that happened to you that triggered that, but then you said I had the, or, or was it a slow burn and you just said I had this longing, I had this longing, you know, mm. like, and so, you know, I think the, the you know, the dark night of the soul thing, that the the rock bottom, the place to where yeah. you just can't take any more is, is actually a good place to get to because that's when I think the, the swinging door. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I, I totally agree. to open. I, I think if I wasn't so traumatized as I was, I mean, my father died when I was five and, and I witnessed that. And my mother had big issues, so she couldn't look after me and all of these things. I wouldn't look for a way out if I wasn't so desperate. I mean, if I was successful and, you know, a good girl in school or whatever, why would I want to way out? If If I'm functioning in this society, even if it's an unhealthy society, I would just continue to try to survive there. Uh, but I didn't really have an option because remaining in that place was impossible. I had, like you say, the dark night of the soul. I knew from a very young age, and I grew up in a city, if I find a drug, any drug that would take away this pain, I will be on it for the rest of my life. So it's highly important that I never touch drugs, and I never did. Uh, uh, and after this experience with this horse, I also felt that trying to do any escapism would would mean dishonoring this meeting. Uh, 
So, so I decided not to take that road, but that was a very conscious decision. So, so I, I believe, like you say, it, it doesn't have to go through pain, but pain can definitely be that door because you're also, you're left with very little to lose. I'm thinking if you're going to open yourself to, to let someone else in, it means that you're also totally losing control. You're making yourself 100% vulnerable at that moment. And if I've built up a great success around my ego, I have a lot to lose in that point. Um, When you're 11 years old and and you're actually not sure that you want to live anymore, then and and you feel something in that other one, well, maybe you will take the chance. So I it's I I don't believe that pain is necessary for the sake of itself, but I in my case I'm. I think it's it sounds strange, but there are also blessings in that story, even if if it sounds bad when you would just tell it. Yeah, you know, I, when I emailed you about being on the podcast, I included twenty questions that we send to all our guests, and you didn't choose this one, but one of those questions is, uh, uh, "What has mm. been your biggest failure, and how has it helped you, mm. or or something like that?" And a lot of mm. times, it's it's you know, it's that a lot of times that story is the dark night of the soul thing, yeah. it's the start of the rest of your life. So I asked you before, had you? Um, had much to do with like therapy or whatever and you said you didn't really uh, especially until later at least later on but you seem to be know <laughs> a great deal about consciousness have you have you read a lot about that studied a lot about that or is all this kind of wisdom and information you have is it kind of come through the animals from the divine or yeah how, i, I how, how almost, I almost there's, there's a quote yeah Sorry, there's a quote from your book here I want to read in a minute. I'm going to really ask you about it, but yeah, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I, I almost didn't read anything. Uh, I've read one book over and over since I was 14. And that's uh, one translation of Tao Te Ching. I think you're supposed to say Tao Te Ching mm. with D. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. it's a yeah. translation by Stephen Mitchell that I, I love it. It's very poetic. And every time I read it, I find a poem that I've never read before. And uh, so if I've done that for more than 30 years, I'll probably do it for another 30 years. And I've taken great inspiration from that book uh, because it really helped me um, to to live with a complexity or to accept the complexity, I, I guess. Um, I always have it in a bag or if I travel somewhere, it's always somewhere in the car or it's always there. Um but I really haven't studied much. Then when I ended up in Jordan, uh, which I eventually did, the the experiences with, with the Maori people took me to Jordan and then back to the, yeah, b- between, uh, between the Hashemite horses in Jordan and, and the Maori communities in New Zealand. It's a very interesting mix. <laughs> but I guess the indigenous is very important there. Uh, I met Sufi people and they were able to phrase some of the things that I had experienced. It was the first time I I met humans that could could phrase things that I couldn't didn't know how to put words on. And and it was the first time I met spiritual seeking people that were speaking about expanding the self, the way the animals 
described it because very many animals I meet, they seem to, it's like it seems to be very important for them or for us to understand the difference between the eternal, like the soul, or the tangible, pretty much everything else. And and that <clears throat> when humans do that, we seem to evaluate the eternal a lot more because it's lasting. So it's a little bit better and we shouldn't, you know, pay too much attention to the body or thought or feelings because they will all vanish. But the animals seem to do the opposite. They notice this difference and they think, well, if the soul is going to be there all the time, then why not enjoy this body? Because that's not going to be there all the time. And there is such a passionate love for life if you sort of let the animals guide you on a spiritual search. And I found that in some of, of, of the Sufi communities, that this sort of passionate love for living, and, and, and they were talking about expanding the self to actually take all the world inside in, in, a, in a loving, almost, you know, crazy, passionately loving way. And, and I'd never really heard that from humans before. So that was... Then I didn't read the Sufi things because I, I read their poems. Their poetry is amazing. But the, the more sort of factual things is very... Um, to me, it's quite complicated read. But I love their poetry. So Tao Te Ching and, and Sufi poetry is, <laughs> uh, is, is what I read the most. So you just kind of brushed over a couple of really important things there. Yeah, well, first I was with the Maori people, then I went to Jordan and I was with the Sufis. So if you, if you guys listening at home, if you're not aware of what Sufism is, it's the, it's the mystical, spirit, mystical branch of, of Islam. Yeah, so tell yeah. me, tell, I was going to ask you, how did you, how did you go to, to New Zealand? You said you had some dreams and... Yeah, I had dreams. And then you ended up there with the Maori people? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that is actually the whole story, if you want to <laughs> fit as much in as possible. No, what, what happened before was that I really asked myself this question, is it necessary to use dominance in the handling of animals? Uh, and this was a question coming from the heart, uh, because I realized that if it is necessary, then I actually have to stop riding. And, and, and riding horses is probably, it, it's one of the things I enjoy most in this life. So if I would really have to stay true to myself in, in not being dominant, and I would then have to stop riding, that would be a huge thing for me. So, so this was a real question to, to God, basically. You know, I need an answer. Is it necessary to use dominance in the handling of animals? Then the dreams started. It took a while for me to connect them. But then I started to have dreams um, about New Zealand and, and very particular, like where to go and, and dreams, like at night, like, like you dream. Did you know anything about New Zealand before that? No. You know, it's, this is so embarrassing. Okay, this, is, this is extremely embarrassing because I was dreaming about the North Island, but I didn't figure that out. So I bought my ticket to New Zealand and, and, <laughs> and I'm sitting on the plane. I'm sitting on the plane and the woman next to me says... Uh, oh, uh, so are you going to the South or the North Island? <laughs> like, sorry, I didn't know there were two. That, that's, that's horrible. I mean, I'm sorry anyone from New Zealand who might listen to this. Uh, that was very ignorant of me. Yes. And, and then... I, well, I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't questioning your knowledge of New Zealand. I'm no. just wondering, are these dreams coming to you because you 
saw a TV program about New Zealand and no. about the Maori people. You read something, no. or these are just downloads from somewhere. Yes, it's from somewhere. Okay. And, yep. and, and I figured out, like you said in the beginning, that if you don't follow what you're supposed to be doing, then you will have stronger signs and eventually you will be dragged to wherever you're supposed to be. And you can do that kicking and screaming, but you're still going to be dragged to where you're supposed to be. And I tend to, to, to uh, make a fuss about it and scream and feel sorry for myself and complain and be very scared and all of that. Uh, yeah. A Emily's not talking about being physically dragged. She's talking about being metaphysically dragged. We, before yes. we started the podcast, we talked about <laughs> how uh, if the universe sends you a message and you ignore it, the universe will send you a bigger message. And apparently this was the bigger message. Yes. And then I, I ended up meeting Maori people that has really, I'm so grateful to them. I'm very grateful for their patience with me uh, uh, coming as, as a white person into their reality and that they had their patience. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> to... Um, Ask me the question, who are you, where do you come from, and get answers like Sweden, or <laughs> not having a clue who I was and what I was doing there. I am, yeah, I'm very grateful to them uh, for, for making me, uh, for teaching me so much about respect, actually, mm. and, and uh, how everything is linked, and how... We are part of this long, long thread. I mean, I couldn't figure out. It took me so long. These ancestors and all of these things. Now, now it starts to make sense in my life. It take a long. It takes a long time to uh, to teach a civilized human being anything. <laughs> uh, so I'm grateful for anyone who has the time for that. New Zealand's really interesting because it's one of the. One of the few places that were colonized that you go there, and like if you get off the plane in America, there is not, there is not a, a sign in the airport in Navajo or Cree or Apache or Cherokee or Lakota or whatever. Mm. You go to Australia, you get off the airplane, there's not a sign in any of the 400 Aboriginal languages, mm. but you get off the plane in New Zealand and there's a big... There's a big, uh, yeah. you know, there's a big sign and, and you, you can go into a petrol station or, you know, American to say a gas station and behind the counter where they keep all the cigarettes, it's the, the roids are there in Maori yeah. and in English. You know, it's, it's the, you know, the, yeah. the, the Maori, <clears throat> there's nine, 17 or 19 Maori chiefs, whatever they were, that signed the Treaty of Waitangi were mm. quite wise. They were kind of like, you know what, if we, if we don't join forces with these white devils, they're going to wipe us out. Yeah, and so we may as well, uh, you know, we can't can't beat them, so we may as well join them. And and I think the Maori culture is still, you know, quite present. Yes, not uh, hidden in New Zealand. No, no, it's not, and it's 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 not without complications, not within the Maori culture oh, no. or not outside of it either. But they they do exist in in a way that few other indigenous people are sadly uh, and I think they have also well I couldn't speak for them but with my experience of being with them they're also learning from their own mistakes and they're using that 
so so there is also an I think they they truly in themselves understand how much the white the white culture if you want to call it that is destroying inside of itself by losing the connection to the entirety to the whole in a way and 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 they understand that pain so somehow they they manage to communicate you know uh, because i think that's what's so hard for the indigenous people it's is that when they try to describe their reality people believe it's all legends or fairy tales or but it's 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 a real way of experiencing life and it's so hard to get that message through and somehow i think they've it's like you say they they've understood perhaps more about us <laughs> or or the culture that came in later uh, because there were cultures in new zealand before that the maoris were having you know issues with and and i think they they are facing that they're facing a lot of things in in their own history and 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 i guess that helps and they're warriors so they were perhaps prepared for that way of thinking um and it's is really not uncomplicated i mean they have all sorts of issues but there is also an honesty in facing that that i mean it's um i had a teacher he's not alive anymore Wiramu, who who was a Maori medicine man, and he used to be a gang member. He'd done horrible, horrible things, and because of that, he wasn't judging others. So people who had done horrible things, they would come to him for guidance because they felt that they they could come with their entire story. They were not going to be judged, and I I learned a lot from that. That we we're, we're not going to get through this by judging each other and. And looking down upon people that don't do what we think that they should or whatever, we we're we're in this together. We we are facing very similar obstacles on on our way, and it was very good to be with him and see how people would come to him from all walks of life, and they were always welcome in his house. How did you get from New Zealand with the Maoris to Jordan with the Sufis? Yeah. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> well, we don't. We we're, we're probably got half an hour left, but I I do want to hear about. Yeah. I do want to hear about uh, yeah. Jordan um, and the Sufis. You know, be, before you go any further, I had a, a guest on the podcast mm, probably in the first year named Shay Stewart, and Shay Stewart does craniosacral work on horses, and mm. you know a bit about alternative mm. therapies. And to in order to do craniosacral work, you have to be really in tune with your mm, yes. own body and energy and all that sort of stuff. And I was trying to figure out, you know, Shay's journey, how how did she end up, uh, how, how does one end up at the place to where you can actually do craniosacral work? And she's telling me her life story and, oh, yeah, then and so she grew up in Texas, like, you know, cowboy Texas sort of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, when I was 14, my mum took me to Sufi camp for, in Oregon. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, okay, that explains a that explains a lot about the way you are, the way you are. Yeah. Uh, so let me hear your I Sufi story. That. I love that. No, what happened in New Zealand was that I had also I had a dream when I was in New Zealand. I was there on and off many times, and it's the same with Jordan. But on one of these journeys, I I had a dream inside of New Zealand, and that dream was about. A people that used to be in New Zealand a long time ago, even before, 
I learned afterwards that this was before the Maoris and the Maoris knew about it, but I didn't know about it. And and they they were living like all the all the things we have discussed now seem to be their natural way of being. This seemed to have been a people that were almost without language because they were constantly in contact with the surrounding world, like in this glimpses that I've talked about. And they were basically, this entire dream showed me that there is actually a way uh, for humans to live in a society that is not destructive and in tune and in, in a constant experience of the rest of the world. Like, not just a person opening the self to to take in the outside world, but actually a society being able to do that, even if it was just a small tribe, but it's still a possibility. Then they knew that other people would come in that would be of a warrior mentality and that there would be no place for them. So they would basically have to leave somehow or be wiped out. That was not clear in the dream what they meant by leaving. I think they somehow ended up behind the veil, like living in in, in, in a dimension behind, uh, which is quite possible in the Maori tradition. Um, but that I figured out later. But, but, but anyway, in the dream, they were leaving their stories inside of a small rock. Uh, like the memories of a time when humans were not divided or isolated from the rest of the creation would be left as a memory inside of a black rock shaped in a way that you could hold it with a little white top on it. It was very clear in the dream. And then someone from this tribe would, would hide this stone where no one, not even himself, would be able to find it. And and that was like, like a memory being kept for the future. And that was the end of the dream. And the next night... I was had another dream that was very clear. In that dream, I opened a map, and on the map there was a river. Next to the river, there is a pathway. If I follow this pathway, I will find what I'm looking for. End of dream. And I'm staying in a woman's house that I, I don't know her from before. I tell her this dream, and she said, Oh, well, my daughter, she, she likes hiking, so she has lots of maps. Perhaps we could go through her maps. The daughter was away somewhere. And we find the exact map. We actually find it. We find the river and the pathway and everything is on it. And I'm delighted. And this woman says, well, this is problematic. It's like, well, how do you mean this is problematic? Well, this is not a safe place. This is a very sacred place for the Maoris. And the, the walls between the different realities are very thin here. And you're not supposed to go there. And if you are supposed to go there at all, you need to have a blessing by the elders. And they're never going to give you one. So forget it. And... <laughs> And through, you know, series of events, uh, I, I end up in this forest uh, and and because uh, I was hitchhiking, I never really have any money and, and I ended up hitchhiking uh, to, to try to get in there and, and eventually, and I meet people on the way to help me. And the last car that picks me up is, is a Volkswagen bus with, with some elderly Maori people in it and they keep giggling and do what they do. And, uh, and they say, oh, okay, so where are you going? And I explain where I'm going. And they say, oh, okay, we'll drive you half the way. Okay, half the way is still a long way. So I'm happy. And we're sitting in the car and they're giggling. And they say, where are you from? Oh, from Sweden. And they keep giggling. And, and after half the way, they uh, stop the car and I go out. And then they say, wait a minute. Did you say you were from Sweden, really? 
Yeah, well, if you've come all this way because of a dream to visit our river, then we will actually help you because we come from this place. We know exactly what you're talking about. We will get you there. And then we go and I jump back into the car and they keep driving and they keep giggling and they and they come to a village and they say, wait a minute here, we're going to talk to someone. And then they say, come back after half an hour and they say, now we've we've talked to some people here and they know what you're doing here and, and you can go. And I realized that this is the blessing. They've actually talked to the people that needs to be talked to. And they say, and they drop me off at the beginning of this river and they say, well, from now on, you don't need us anymore. You follow your dream. And there are so many aspects to this story. And and there's so much to say about this place. That this, uh, I've just decided that this podcast, it can be as long as it wants to be. So <laughs> tell me the whole story because yeah. this is this is... This is like your own version of the alchemist, yeah. but yeah, tell okay. me the whole story. Yeah, because we need this particular story to understand Jordan, I think. Uh, oh, okay. Um, so anyway, um, I've been taught two things on the way. And that is, okay, so you go into a place that is in, a, in its way timeless. And people disappear there. And, and, and usually the tourist board, it, bl- it blames the mist for it. Uh, but no one really has an explanation, uh, except that there is seems to be an opening somehow. And you need to have a great respect for that. So so what I learn is if the mist comes, I'm not allowed to move. And if someone calls my name, I should not follow the calling. These two things that I have to obey, it shouldn't be impossible, okay? So Where did you get these two things from? From the people that I was hitchhiking with. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, so, and another man that I talked to before actually uh, also said the same thing. So I realized th- this is important. Don't follow the voices and stand still if there is a mist. Just please just do those two things, all right? So I walk in and it is an amazing area and I'm barefooted because I think I really need to stay connected to the ground. So I will be without shoes and, and I'm terrified uh, and I will, you know, really do this step by step and not make a mistake. I'm walking in this afternoon and, and it's starting to be evening. And then I hear someone say, Emily. And this is so unlikely. Why would someone do that? I'm, I'm all by myself. And then I remember that, okay, don't follow the voices, right? And then I hear Emily again. And then I'm thinking, well, the river is not so far away. So if I follow this voice just a little bit, then I should still be able to find my way back to the river. So so I decide to, to go off the path and follow the voice uh, against all better knowledge. And I continue uh, and I end up in a place where there is a white stone, a big white stone. And I'm thinking now when I'm telling it to you and you were talking about this Lakota woman that were talking about the nations. Now I'm wondering if there is a connection there because in that stone, don't ask me how this works, but I could see circles of different species, like a circle of animals, a circle of trees, a circle of rocks, um, and they were moving circles. And I understand that this, this, is, this is what I am. I, I'm not a particular individual. I am more the journey between them, the, the possibility of the story of life to continue. That's what we all are. Uh, being a person is just a, 
it's just a way to make the story continue, but it's actually the, the, the way that matters. And, and, and I guess that was helpful because if you're in a, in a timeless area, you would get lost because you would identify with, with a place where you don't belong. And then you wouldn't find your way out again. It, it would make sense. But if I am nobody, if I'm the movement itself, then it's, there is a difference. So it's very hard to put words on this, but I walk back, I find my way back to the path actually, and it's getting dark. At this point, it's getting dark and I have this tiny little tent with me. So I'm thinking that, okay, I will just look for a place to, to put my tent and I will sleep and I'll continue in the morning. And then I hear the voices again. And now I'm thinking, okay, well, it went quite well the last time. So if I follow the voices again, <laughs> you see, obedience is not really what I do. So I'm thinking that, well, not, yeah, I, I follow it. I mean, what is there to lose? So I follow the voices again, and, and now it, it goes on. I mean, I walk quite a bit into the forest. And this is so unlikely that I, I, I normally don't tell this story to people because when I tell it, it's like, this couldn't have happened, but it did. Um, so I, I follow you this. You have the right audience here. Yeah. We're, we're all over this stuff, all our <laughs> listeners, so this is good. Go well, ahead. good. <laughs> Thank you. Um uh, and I, I walk through this forest away from the river and I come to this tiny little stream in, and it's dark. And it's this tiny stream and it's ponga trees around and I, I love ponga trees. So I'm, I'm sitting next to them and I'm putting my feet in the water because it just makes sense to do that. And I'm looking down into the water. I see this tiny little black pebble. And for some reason, I realized that I, I want to take this pebble out of the water. So I'm reaching down to get it out and I can't get it out. I'm thinking, what is this strange? So I start trying to get out this pebble and I realize it's much bigger. It's actually a black rock shaped like a hand so you can hold your fingers around it with a white top. It's exactly the stone in the dream. This is impossible. You, 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 it can't happen. And, and my world is collapsing because now I no longer know what is dream time or real time or physical or non-physical. It's I just have to accept that my way of looking at the world is never, ever really going to be the same again. And, and it, it hasn't. So I'm sitting there with this stone coming out of a dream. And <laughs> this is, I don't know what to do with this. I, I have no idea what to do with this. So I'm sitting there with the stone and I eventually find my way actually back to the tent. And in the morning, I take this stone down to the river. And I'm just sitting with it because I have no idea what to do with it. What is in this stone? If these are the memories of, of a time where humans were not detached, how do they keep them? And I, I realize it's brilliant to put it in a stone that is so ordinary that anyone would just trip over it without ever noticing it. And... And out of this stone, there is this tune. It's like a, a wordless, quite monotonous little melody. And I realized that it's, it's kept as a vibration. It's not kept as a story because a story, anyone would change. It is just kept as the essence of a memory. And, and I don't know what to do with this, with this stone because it, it doesn't belong to me. This story doesn't belong to me. I can't do what I want with it. But it would be very wrong of me to not... I, I mean, I feel that I need to wait for the next sign. I mean, I can't do anything before I'm getting a direction. So this stone comes with me.
And and then I was telling this story. I remember I was telling it to Bruce, the one I was doing the the, the horses taking over things with. And I said, and then it took me two days to walk out. And he said, it took you two days to walk out. You don't find that strange at all. You come there in the afternoon and you walk in in a few hours and it takes you two full days to walk out. Like, I, I can't explain that. <laughs> but it, it, it took me two days to walk out with the stone. And there was mist and I was standing still. I was at least doing that part. Uh, <laughs> and, and the stone went with me back to Sweden because I was still waiting for a sign. Um, and when I came back to Sweden, I started to have very strange dreams. Um, to me, very strange. Um, because I was dreaming about deserts and stone portals and old Roman theatres and it just didn't make sense. And I, I was trying to figure out what is this place? And I, I would see a man with a very particular, uh, like this sort of peering, cheeky type of eyes, but still very sharp gaze in them. And, and and this person was, was telling me uh, that you need to go to this place. It's like, okay, but what place is it? And deserts, I'd never been in deserts. And and then one morning I woke myself up from from shouting out the, now, the name Aman so loud that I actually, you know, you can wake up from snoring. <laughs> it's like I wake up from saying Aman. So I figure out it must be Jordan. And, and then I'm really terrified because the Middle East, you know what we see on, on the TV of the Middle East? It's right. not really the place to go. So I'm seriously struggling with myself and calling a sort of, you know, these, these signs that keeps coming and it keeps pushing. And I call, <laughs> I call a travel agency. I figure out that if I call the travel agency uh, to see if I can book a ticket, even if I don't intend to book one, maybe then I have shown the universe that I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> so I call the travel agency and say, well, uh, is it possible to go to Amman? I mean, I guess it's not. And I said, no, it's fine. You can. Well, do you want to book a ticket? I said, no, I don't want to book a ticket. But eventually I did book a ticket and I ended up there. Um, and the the stone from New Zealand went there. And, and I understood that somehow it is about the sharing of that story. If, if that stone is put in the desert, it means that it will be shared and transferred between every tiny grain of sand. It means that there is much more sharing points than putting it next to a big mountain. So it's about making the story travel. And when it comes to the heart of the Middle East, you're also in the, in the heart of many human conflicts. And that was what made me so scared of it. And I never thought that I would find the answer to the question, do you need to use dominance in the handling of animals in the middle, in the middle of the Middle East, <laughs> in, in a stable where, you know, mainly the military people work to look after the horses. And this, again, it's a sense of humor in the universe. So through connections and all sorts of strange encounters, I ended up meeting uh, Princess Alia, who is the daughter of the late King Hussein, who inherited his horses that has followed the Hashemite family for, well, since the time of the Prophet Muhammad. And it turns out that these horses, the legend is 
that these horses are carrying messages meant to help humankind. But so far the story has remained a legend. The horses are being kept and respected and looked after, but the the actual story, what what they really want to tell us, was still not spoken of. So by placing the stone in, in the desert and all these these stories started to travel and I ended up meeting these horses that really their entire teaching is about how to help people getting across uh, getting across that gap they the first time I met them they they described uh, a cloud like a, a sand a sand cloud like when the wind you know does these whirls in the desert and out of this cloud came seven horses in different colors and like we said the difference between the the self and the ego uh, each one of these seven horses would have a story about a quality that would both be needed for the self to expand but also necessary to to face when we are facing the ego <clears throat> and and I was talking to, to Alia about it and she said, well, there are seven bloodlines. There are seven bloodlines that goes back all this way. And apparently these messages have a connection to these seven bloodlines. And it was when that story started to come out and, and we learned from that, I, I realized that, yes, definitely, it is not necessary for humans to use dominance. What we're looking for is a state of being, not a technique. Uh, and we need to practice. And it was when that story eventually then came back with me again to Sweden. And I realized I have to practice where I, where I stand. You know, you have to start where you live. Uh, and that's when the horses decided to start the school. So, so that's the long... It started with, with a, a rock in New Zealand that needed to go to the desert that then... And that journey made all the connections that made me get to know this, this amazing woman who is looking after these horses. And because of her openness and not seeing them as, as an objective, she really don't see herself as an owner at all. Uh, she, she, she gave the horses the space to actually tell this story and for that story to be released out of, his, out of this quite closed culture. And, and come out um, to, to a wider audience because that's where it's supposed to be now. I, un I understand that we are supposed to get across the boundaries of culture and inheritance and bloodlines and because now we, we need to get used to the fact that we are one. That is quite the story, uh, <laughs> especially... Uh, someone from Sweden arriving in a Middle Eastern country knowing no one and yeah. end up hanging with the princess. Yeah. How did you meet her? Well, I, I met her. Uh, I first got to know her brother at a wedding. Um, yeah, well, I, you, you seem to be able to handle anything, so I just... <laughs> Oh, I can I can handle anything, and I'm yes. and I'm pretty sure there's a weird something that leads up to you meeting her because that wasn't yes. random. No, I was invited to a royal wedding in Norway, and that entire thing is based on that the princess that was getting married then, 
she used to have a stallion that was very difficult to handle and she needed help with him. And that's how I got to know her. So I was invited to her wedding and there I got to know Marion Rosen, uh, a, a woman who used to live in California and she started the Rosen Method. And she's a, a okay. really interesting person. So that was that's another thing. But I, mm, I, I miss her and I love her. And anyway... You know, I live in the forest, I wear gumboots, I don't use makeup. A royal wedding really is very far away from my comfort zone. <laughs> you know, I bought all these gossip magazines so I would, you know, not embarrass myself by not knowing who's who. I practiced walking back and forth in this tiny 20 square meter house in high heels. <laughs> it was, you know, just to, to try to get to that wedding. Anyway, <laughs> and, and then... Uh, these, these events, they go on for three days and it's horrific, you know. You have to be able to do small talk and, and drink all these little drinks and, and say whatever thing that isn't too provocative. And, and I can't say what I work with. I usually, usually say that I'm a physiotherapist because it's a sort of boring word and normally there is no more questions. Uh, so, so I'm doing that. Uh, when this man comes up to me and I've never met him, uh, never, he doesn't say hello. He doesn't introduce himself. He just shakes my hand and say, you have to go to Jordan. And, you know, in this bizarre situation, in these crazy clothes, like you're on a masquerade sort of thing, I'm thinking, how on earth does he know? I know that I need to go to Jordan, but I didn't tell anyone. You know, how does he know this? Uh, and I'm actually quite angry uh, because because I'm uh, this is at the point where I'm struggling. So I'm angry with him. Uh so I'm just sort of, well, I know I have to go to Jordan. What's this fuss about? And he says, well, good. Good that you know that you have to go. Then uh, whatever. If you need any help with anything, just, you know, make sure that you get in contact with my secretary. And I'm thinking this is really bizarre. But anyway, it's a sign. Uh, and then I'm it's thinking. Def that's definitely a sign. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> a sign. It's like when you struggle, you get a stronger sign. Uh, and then I'm thinking, well. Uh, this this person obviously knows something about Jordan, so perhaps I should actually ask him something. And I'm thinking, I need to ask him if a woman can travel by herself in Jordan. That's important information for me. So I'm asking him that. And he literally, literally says, well, do you believe that snow can come down from a tree in the middle of the summer or that a donkey can make backflips? Literally those words. And I'm thinking... Well, at this point in time, my life is so strange. So why not? Why not? Yeah, I suppose it can. And he says, fine, you'll have no problems traveling on your own in Jordan. You're very welcome. And off he goes. So I contacted his secretary, but I never got an answer. So I never thought that he actually would help me. But he did. Uh, this secretary really helped me. And... But I didn't get to know his sister in this way. Uh, what happens is that I get to know a Jordanian artist, visual artist. Hang on, called... hang on. Let's 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 back up. So who is that guy? Yeah, exactly. I ask. <laughs> sorry, I ask the uh, towards the middle of the wedding. I ask my friend who is getting married. I met this really strange guy. And he told me I need to go to Jordan. And how does he know? No one knows. And she said, oh, that, that, that's, he's, that's Ali. He's a prince of Jordan. And I'm thinking, well, there is no way. There is no way a prince of Jordan is going to help this gumboot girl from nowhere. So 
yeah, I'll send him, I'll send an email to his secretary, but forget about it. So I send an email to his secretary and I get no reply. So I'm thinking, okay, well, it's still a sign and I have to go. So that's it. I'm going. And I decide to to sleep in the airport because I'm thinking I'm going to get there when it's dark. I know nothing about the Middle East. I should sleep in the airport and then try to find my way in daylight. So I come to the airport and I've never been to the Middle East. So I'm not used to all these machine guns. And and I, I walk off the plane and before I get anywhere, there is this huge guy. To me, he's huge. I'm very short, but still. And he has a machine gun and he takes my passport and off he goes. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, this guy has a machine gun and my passport. And I think I'm going wherever he's going. <laughs> and and he puts me in a car and this car drives away at very high speed. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, this car is driving into 100 kilometers per hour. There is a machine gun. I still don't have my passport and I've been kidnapped and I'm the stu- most stupid person on this planet. Why did I get into that car? Why do I have keep taking all these r- stupid risks? Then the car stops in front of the Sheraton Hotel in Amman. And now my next fear is all the money I've brought for this trip will not be enough for one night in this hotel. <laughs> How will I get out in the morning? So I'm sitting on the bed, terrified all night. I don't dare to touch anything because I can't pay for anything. And in the morning, there is this knock on the door. And it's the secretary. It is the secretary. Uh, and he has a little notebook and he says, Okay, uh, can you tell me all about these dreams? So I tell him all about the dreams. And he says, Well, we'll help you to get to all of these places. And this can't happen, but it happened. So, and in looking for all these places, uh, I get to know this artist called Ali Maher. Uh, And Ali Maher says one day, there is someone that you have to meet. You really have to meet this person. Okay, I have to meet this person. Uh, Says you have to come with me and we go to an art gallery. And we go past the art gallery and we walk down lots of steps. It's a beautiful place. And he says, there she is, there she is, pointing at a tree. So I'm like, okay, uh, uh, there is a tree. Yes, there is a tree. And you won't believe me. It's like 10, 15 years ago, but in the middle of the summer, snow was actually coming down from the branches. I'm thinking, okay, so if you believe that, all right, the tree so I spent a lot of time with this tree. This tree is my first Sufi teacher. Before I know anything about Sufism, I spent weeks with this tree. And and one night when I'm, as usual, sitting next to the tree and, and writing down all the experiences, uh, Ali Maher comes rushing and he says, Oh, you have to come to a dinner. You have to come to a dinner. There is a princess there and you have to meet her. And I'm I'm angry because I love the tree and I hate fancy dinners. So, <laughs> no, I'm not going to meet a pink and fluffy princess. We've laughed about this afterwards. I'm never going to meet a pink and fluffy princess. I have no idea that this princess is, is so not pink and fluffy. And at the same time, he's left Princess Alia in the dinner. Uh, and she hates these this dinners too. <laughs> and say, I have a friend. You have to meet her. You have to wait here. And she's like, I, I hate this dinner. I'm not going to stay here. He's struggling to make us meet. And finally, he managed to make her stay and, and me come. And she shows a photo of a horse. He says, 
I, we have this stallion and we don't understand his behavior. Do you think you can help us? And from that moment on, we became friends. She's she's an amazing person. She's she's one of my best friends I've ever had. Our lives are so totally different, but that doesn't seem to matter. So a stubborn, red-haired artist and a rock from New Zealand and whatever it took to... <laughs> For, for the stories of these Hashemite horses to come forth, because I guess that's that's what it was all about. You know, I try not to be judgmental these days, but, you know, I don't like to compare one guest to the next, but I think that's <laughs> the best story I've ever heard in 115 <laughs> episodes of the podcast. And I've heard some weird stories. Wowzers! You, you are you are the you are the absolute perfect journey on podcast guest because you are on a journey and I'm not sure it's finished yet. But no, I, I guess uh, it's it's not finished for as long as we. You didn't breathe. come this far. You didn't come this far just to come this far. No, no. So tell me about uh, the what are these horses called? Hasha. Hashemite, the family is called the Hashemite family, the, the, the humans. Mm. So therefore they are called the Hashemite horses because they have followed this family. They, they are linked. I mean, they, they are the, the direct line coming from, from the Prophet Muhammad. It's not so known that he was also communicating with animals. I mean, that's a part of Islam that just doesn't really make the headline news. <laughs> as much as some of the other aspects. So I guess these horses have been seen. We're talking about how what can be expressed in a meeting also depends on how big the room is, how much can actually fit in. And I guess if you've been respected as a spiritual being for hundreds and hundreds of years, it's more likely that that story would have taken on a form that can then be explained because it's it's somehow possible in that frame, I guess. And, um, and they, I mean, they were talking a lot uh, or sharing a lot about, uh, like you say, consciousness and, and, and uh, the spiritual search. And these seven lines, they, <clears throat> they also describe, it also describes the journey of, of, of any one of us from, from beginning to end and, and what we, it could, it could mean during a lifetime, it could mean during a day, it could mean during a particular event uh, or, or, or a, something we do in the day. <clears throat> but it starts with the first line uh, that could be described as courage and and. The, the creation, I guess, the creation of the individual, the, the meeting point of, of body and soul and, and how we, we make our way to become alive at all. I guess that takes a lot of courage uh, to go from whatever eternal space we start from to become mortal and go through all of these scary, sometimes very scary events. <clears throat> and, and an imbalance here would be... Uh, to be stuck with our opinions, to, to defend ourselves in, in the wrong way, uh, or to not stand up for anything at all, to just want to be what anyone else wants us to be. And <clears throat> what I 
realize the more we practice what these horses are teaching is that you actually you can't go on to any spiritual journey we're so stuck with wanting to find the spiritual but we must have a self to start with there must be a person doing this walk if we are not true to ourselves there will be no person to continue the rest the rest of the story and and we tend to forget that part or i tend to forget that part because i want to go somewhere else where i'm not where there is not this pain or where there is not all these limitations inside. I want to be somewhere else. And, and the horses representing this, this line basically says that you, you have to start from who you are and you have to be totally true to yourself. Uh, otherwise, you, will, you, you cannot continue. There is no continuation. And then the, the, the second group was describing something that very much surprised me in the beginning because, again, we're looking for... I guess in the beginning of a spiritual search, we we always look for something nice uh, and, and harmonious and easy. And then we realize that it's going to be the most difficult thing we've ever done. And we've already started walking and there's no way back. So, so the, the second group represents aggression and, and protection of vulnerability or protection of of anyone who can't defend themselves, also saying that in a society it's necessary that the strong ones are also prepared to give their lives to help the ones that can't survive otherwise. Otherwise we will get a society where only the strongest will survive. We will have a constant competition and only the strongest will survive and that's really not what we want. So unless we have a healthy sense of integrity and feeling that we are truly worthy to be protected or worthy to protect someone else, there will still not, our person, our newborn person in the first line, can never make its way out into the world. And I will never be able to respect someone else unless I can find this deeper sense of, of having a value simply because I am alive. Not because of what I do. I think what we were speaking about to not have expectations. That's very hard to not have for as long as you need constant confirmation. So, so many animals are describing that everything that is alive contains of an equal amount of life. Even if you're, you're a mosquito or a horse or a human or a tree, the amount of life that makes it possible for you to exist is, is you, you can never measure that. You can never put a value on that. And to totally understand that or to have that insight seems to be what the second group is represented. So aggression is not a feeling. It's more like rage being a force to be able to... And you were also saying that, you know, we will all have... We all want to survive. I mean, it, it, there is something in us that will try to, to survive. Uh, and, and, and that's natural and normal. We, we, we're going to want that. We're going to, you know, in a way, a horse would find it very strange if I have no self-respect, if I will never have a boundary, because that, that would be quite unhealthy and a bit strange. But it has to come from the right place, um, not, not, from, not from a place of, of wanting the other one to respect me without me being able to respect myself. This is a complicated subject. I mean, there is a lot to learn mm. in this in this one. And I guess you never go from one and then you're finished. It's like all of these are constantly 
you know, accurate somehow. And, and then the third line described friendship, meaning that this person who is now hopefully alive and able to maintain life will now turn towards the outside world and form relationships, which I guess is what we've been talking about a lot today. How, how do we overcome that gap? Well, that's very hard if we don't have a self that can expand and an integrity to show the proper respect, to truly invite the other one. I mean, I, I love that picture of your hands and, and the and the horse's nose, you know. we That is a sign of mutual respect and, and trying that out in a very sort of gentle way with, with each other. And and the friendship horses describes this <clears throat> this gentleness like if coexistence or interbeing could be felt as a sensation, like if we could feel it in our fingertips. These are these fine threads that is connecting this entire creation into a web. And they also say that can so easily be cut. It's like when you say it's enough that I turn away and I say that I'm not interested. It, it's cut. But at the same time, if it's there, it's the strongest uniting force that can ever exist. So, so it's, it's both. But unless I have a self and an integrity, I will lose myself in a relationship quite easily. And, and that's not what the horses want. They don't want me to be submissive either. They, what I find is they, they look for an equal. They, they look for, because that's where we both can grow, when we have a completely mutual meeting point and, and, and respect. And this is what the friendship horses are talking about. So you've you know turned, in the in the yeah. therapy in the therapy world they would call that um, independent versus codependent I think yeah yeah that that would make sense that would make sense because you wouldn't you wouldn't need the other one for for anything so you can totally give yourself and that works right, when the other yes. one is doing the same thing yes that's that's why I love this image of the hands and the horse being invited it's exactly that right. And then the touch becomes gentle because that's how it's conveyed somehow. Right. So we're up to the fourth one now. Sorry to interrupt yeah. your flow. There. No, no. Oh. The fourth one, it seems to be this big platform that if we're lucky to be able to grow old, this is the, this is the platform where our everyday life is being spent. <laughs> and I, I think in English the right word would be uh, perseverance, uh, because endurance would be more struggling. Uh, perseverance is more that you, you can appreciate also, or or you can stand, <laughs> you can be, with all these small cycles of repetition that everyday life will be. Most of our lives will be based on our everyday chores, and if we cannot be content with that, we're going to have a big problem by the time we need to let go of this lifetime. So mm. to, to appreciate things that we forget, like heartbeats, breathing, uh, mucking out the stables, <laughs> uh, cleaning out the garden, uh, feeding your horse, watering your horse, uh, doing all these repetitive things that we think we do in order to wait for the big, big events, but what if that is the big event? <laughs> what if that is the the spiritual practice in in serving someone? 
and and that we we don't look for for fame or, or we don't do it to be seen we do it for the sake of doing it again you have the practice without without the fourth line it's going to be very hard then you're going to say after three hours well i've sat here for three hours i'm receiving nothing well you know you have years ahead of you <laughs> with you this know, exercise in, hopefully <laughs> yeah. uh, i think i think in the in the hindu practices there's a, a thing called karma yoga and karma yoga is focusing on a task with no thought as to the outcome of that task whether it's mm. the completion of that task or mm. the at uh, the a validation of completing the task or the the external validation or any of that. It's just, mm. like you just said, just doing the repetitive things, not because of any adulation or anything you might get for it, but just mm. doing the work. Yeah. And it seems as if we cannot find the sort of deeper sense of, of joy or contentment is perhaps a better word in that then... We will mainly just live or look look for something that will only very rarely be present, like like the moment when we are being seen or recognized, and 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 the rest would the rest then just have been a waste. So so they they turn all that around and and they gave practices that was really really nice. It's like, well, look for the sand that is under the water puddle that keeps holding the water. You never thought about those, did you? You know, or <laughs> uh, like the, these tiny things in nature that we forget because we always try, we look for something else. Because we have this linear time and we keep going, <laughs> we just keep going. Um, so the fifth line is adapting to new circumstances. And adapting to new circumstances comes when it's time for us to start the, the part of the journey that means that we talk about the consciousness connecting <clears throat> the body and the soul. And in the beginning of our lives, we struggle to get used to the body. I mean, it takes for ages before we can walk. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, trying to get used to the body could be a full lifetime <laughs> practice. It's, it's, it's a, a fascinating tool, but it's, it's not easy. Um, but eventually, when you have started to learn how to live with yourself and, and maintaining you know, your, your everyday practice of life, then comes the time when, when the process of dying actually begins, meaning that your, your, your consciousness is going to now move from this identity that you've built or this person that you've gotten to know to now become more attached to your soul. You're going to be more going towards your soul. And this can be quite a painful state if you're not prepared at all. You know, this is where we try to wipe the wrinkles of our faces so we can go back again and use more of the time. Or, or I remember it was a horse in Jordan called Rakan who, who was representing this line and talking about it. And he described it like, we don't need any more monuments we need more people that have lived their life to the fullest. So when they let go, they can go without a trace. And and he was also describing that this line represents also allowing time to do its work. We're not fighting against the 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 chronological time, meaning that we will move from birth to death, whether we like it or not. All the species will do it to some extent in different ways. 
and it's part of, of this cycle. And when you come to the fifth line, it's about time to start to accept that. And they also described it like, this is also where we have to accept that whatever I have achieved in this lifetime, now it's time to give it away so that the next generation can do it better. Uh, I shouldn't stand in their way. I should allow the, the line to continue beyond me. And if I have a problem with that, then it will be even more difficult when I get to this, the sixth line, which is about trust. And I thought, for me, <laughs> I thought trust is something nice and harmonious and floaty and, you know, nothing happening at all, like a, like a day in the, out in the sun, you know. And when I met the horses in Jordan that represented this line, they were wild. They were completely crazy. They were almost impossible to walk with. To get them from one paddock to the other was an adventure. They had so much energy and they were afraid of nothing. And, and, and I realized that I'd mixed up trust with safety. You know? <laughs> uh, if you have trust to the level that they do, because they have passed all these stages and they have accepted to let go of everything, then there is nothing to be afraid of anymore. So one horse explained it like it's like running down a hill and you don't know how it's going to end and you just love doing it. And they spoke about generosity. It's like once you have accepted that now I'm leaving this lifetime slowly and I'm moving towards my soul and an even perhaps more interesting journey, all my experiences, everything I have learned so far now has to go back to the world. Now is when I'm, I'm sharing everything with everyone. I'm not holding anything back because it never belonged to me to start with and I have to give it all away. And if I have accepted that, uh, that that's a very good thing to do. I mean, I would be very excited even to do that. And they describe trust as like, like a force of, 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 a, of a river, you know, that would just throw itself onto swinging doors that would just go wide open. That without trust, we are completely closed in. We, we would live in a world where there is no way in and no way out. So I realized that, okay, trust for me is clearly something else. Um, and I know that there is this line in Tao Te Ching where it says, to trust someone that is trustworthy, that has nothing to do with trust. It just means that you know it's going to end well. But to trust the untrustworthy, <laughs> that's that's where the interesting thing starts. So, yeah, that's so where you, 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 that's the giving up of control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what we ask our horses to do all the time when we want them to trust us. We have no clue who we are, where we are going. And we still claim that they should follow us everywhere. You know, it's uh, maybe we could try it the other way around and follow them for a bit and end up on a very odd journey around the world. And, and then you come to the last group, the seventh group, which is compassion. And compassion sort of also sums it all up in a way. It's like it's, it's the last line, but it also ties it all back to the beginning again. Because it's like to them, and to all species, it seems to be that when we die, I mean, we had the first line, uh, courage, which is when we are born, and you have the last line, compassion, which is when we die, whether we die 
spiritually by killing our ego or physically by actually leaving this whole identity. It seems to be that what we, where we end up when we finally leave uh, is in a place where there is only some sort of complete unconditional acceptance, like, like a, a total uh, love or forgiveness, um, where all animals describe that somehow you are met with facing your entire life in the presence of someone that is completely non-judgmental and all deep, this deep unconditional acceptance and love. And, and in that point, eventually our identity will completely dissolve and we are one with everything. And then somehow out of that, the individual is born. Whether it's us again in, in a way of reincarnation or whether it's life itself that keeps recreating itself, that is another question. But then out of this nothingness that is also the merge of everything, then comes the individual and then we are back to courage again. So, so it keeps it keeps going in whether it's it's your practice from morning till night or or it's your lifetime you can you can find all your challenges in there and and how we and and how and how we can go back to create what they seem to say is also that we can create this compassionate existence here we, we don't need to die physically for that to happen that that journey is possible within a lifetime and you don't need any special skills you don't need to be chosen you don't need to be it's it's possible there is there's a way somehow if if you would choose to uh, so i guess that was the question that was asked in in do you need to use dominance no there there is another way and that these hashemite horses will somehow when i try to translate the essence of it it's like the way of compassion and that can be practiced in 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 so many different ways, depending on who you are and 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 where you are. Um, but I I really believe it, it it is a possibility, and especially through these small acts, like like when you describe just to show someone that there is kindness, you don't need to to be so defensive all the time. You know that that is that is a step on that way. So. Yeah, I got I got uh, so tied up in listening to all those seven things. So these are groups of horses, like lines of horses, and all of this came from those horses. Like yeah. all this information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said about sitting under the tree for weeks. Was the tree communicating to you? Yes. Getting stuff from the tree. Yes, um, the tree. This is a fascinating thing with trees. I guess because we have legs. So when we have encounters with species that don't move, it sort of worries us, or perhaps just me, but it's like to stand there for an entire lifetime, wouldn't that be terribly boring? <laughs> but then we forget that, you know, trees don't even have senses like us. It's a completely different universe. I mean, it's, it's very different uh, and, and definitely not boring. Uh, I, I guess we've... We find things boring because when we lose our presence, when we're not present, that's when we can be bored. If you're truly present, it, it's never boring, really. Never boring, yeah. 
Because, so, you, yeah, you're not expecting it to be different or exactly different than it was before or I want it to be different in a minute. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask you about um, there was the tree, there was the horses. Oh, the book. So All the King's Horses is it's about this. that book about your time in Jordan. Yeah. And it's about also <clears throat> the, the journey with, with the stone and yeah, that's in that book. There are three books, but that's the only one that has been translated into English and that has this in it. Oh, I can't. I'm excited because I'm like, I can't, I can't have this podcast gone forever, but I want to know more. So, uh, all the king's horses, where can, where can people get all the king's yeah, horses? Yeah, you see, this is, this is the thing. It's been sold out, but we found a bunch in Jordan and I have a tiny bunch in my house. And now we're finding a way to reprint it as well. So, yeah, for, for now, yeah. uh, we are collecting addresses from people who want to have it and sending those. <laughs> those addresses to Jordan and then they send it from Jordan to wherever you are until those books are finished and and I'm also sending away the ones that I have so I need the address and phone number it turns out that when you're sending things abroad the postal office whatever they want a phone number so I need that on on my email and and then then and then it will be sent and then when those books have finished there might be a gap when we are waiting for the reprint and then right. they can come out so, so that's so if, how if someone it is. wants to try and get one of these, how do they contact you? Uh, the best is, is to have my email address, the one that you have, so you could put that one out. Okay, do you have a, do you have a website? Yes, uh, we have a website uh, called friendsofmiu.com. Okay, so we'll put, we'll put that in the show notes. We won't put mm. your email in the show notes, we'll put that in the, the emails on that website. Uh, mm, I can make it be on that website. Okay. Well, yeah, let's, let's uh, do it. it. It's not me who is. Uh, it, it's a student of mine that is really good at these website thingies, and I think mm. we can put <laughs> it there. Thing. If yes, if you if you want, uh, if you're interested in, in buying the book, this is how you proceed. Yeah, I think we should ah, put that yes. in the website. Brilliant. Okay, we will do that. That's awesome. Um, I would. Love to hear stories from you from all day long, but you, we are now currently the longest podcast I've done, <laughs> and I just couldn't. No, Sorry. it's fine. About about forty minutes ago, I was thinking we don't have much time left, and it sounds like there's a whole lot more story left. So I thought I'm just going to let the story come out. Mm. Uh, and so, what it was that? What was the name of that website again? Uh, uh, Friends of Miu. I can I can send it to you in an email if. Okay, okay, and we'll put it in, and we'll uh, yeah. put those in the, we'll put that in yeah. the show notes. Friendsofmiu.com, because Miu was, that, was the horse that helped us starting the school. That, so. The starting one, okay. And that's the best way for people to contact you too, if they want to know more about what you do, or people want to come and yes. visit you where you are at yeah. the we we are going school. to, because because a lot of what we do here is, is, is through charity, uh, mm -hmm. so because the animals, we're, we're not, earning money from them because they're not being sold on and so on. So we're also starting to create a platform that like 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 a sister website thing where where courses and the school things will be also to organize it correctly for for the tax department so we keep the charity and and the and the work um uh, in, in a logic way. Um but for now 
all of that can be found from this one website. But we're um, because we are now creating like a possibility for people from from abroad to also be be part of what we're doing. Because so far everything has been in Swedish, and it's it's not that it has to be in that, like that. But if people would come from abroad, we we need a little bit different system because you travel far and you might need to stay longer and so on. We right. we need a big okay. we need a big we need a big tent. <laughs> a big tent. Okay. Well, that, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. That was that was one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> thank you that was that was wonderful um you guys at home thanks so much for joining us and um we will catch you in the next episode of the journey on podcast thanks for being a part of the journey on podcast with warwick schiller warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com be sure to follow warwick on youtube facebook and instagram to see his latest training advice and insights 